The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The Everyday Wealth Radio Show and podcast are produced and created by Edelman Financial Engines and hosted by Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Ms. Chatsky and Ms. O'Brien are not employees or clients of the firm. They receive fixed cash compensation for acting as hosts and related activities and therefore have an incentive to endorse Edelman Financial Engines and its planners. For additional information, please see www.edelmanfinancialengines.com slash everyday-wealth. The 20 2021 Top 100 Independent Advisory Firm Ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative, including assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory records, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Compensation is paid for use and distribution of rating. Awarded September 2021 based on data within a 12-month period. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money, this is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines. Ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien. And you are listening to Everyday Wealth, sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. So as we all know, one person, one lucky, lucky human being in Illinois, hit it very big on Mega Millions, is going to take home the jackpot of $1.28 billion, with a B, billion dollars, the third largest jackpot, uh, because, of course, it had gone unwon since April 25th. The odds, I did not know this, the odds were one in 302.5 million. So imagine your luck to be able to do that. When the jackpots get that big, of course, everybody wants that dream, right, to be a big lottery winner. But according to CNBC, lottery winners are more likely to declare bankruptcy within three to five years than the average American, which is kind of counterintuitive. I think that everybody thinks that winning the lottery or making a million dollars or more all will be the answer to you know any prayer. But if you go by the data on lottery winners, it actually doesn't seem to be the case, which of course begs the question, can money buy happiness? And that is one of the big topics on our show today. Absolutely, Soledad. And let me just say, I am sure we have so many people listening who are thinking, oh yeah, Oh, yeah. If I had that $1.2 billion jackpot before taxes, of course, but happiness is definitely what I'd be feeling. But since I'm guessing, I'm just guessing that the winner is not listening today, we actually need a plan B. And mine is called a financial advisor. Soledad, you mentioned this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Every week, we're guided by EFE Wealth Planners who can help us put a plan in place to help us achieve whatever our financial goals happen to be. And it may not be that $1.2 billion windfall, but I think... No, it is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly, literally, specifically that. that. (laughs) Whatever your financial goal happens to be, having the life you want and being able to pay for it, I think is a pretty great place to start. And that is within all of our reach, particularly if we work with a financial advisor and particularly if we work with one of the over 300 Edelman Financial 
Engines wealth planners across the country. If you're looking to work with someone who's looking out specifically for you, give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. You know there's a good chance you may have one of these folks right in your community. A few weeks ago, we talked about uh, financial stress and all the ways in which you might be able to lessen yours. Winning the lottery could get rid of some stress. Also, uh, given the headlines that we see day in and day out, headlines that directly impact us on a daily basis, you can't help but wonder if happiness is really possible, like full-on happiness, when so much of our emotions are tied to money. So today we're going to dive into that topic, and then later in the show we'll be talking with Michael Norton. He's the co-author of the book called Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending, and I'm sure Michael has insights and steps uh, that we can take to move that happiness needle. Uh, Before we get to any of that, though, here's less happiness. <laughs> Sorry, Jean. I'm going to hand this this right off to you. Less happy, more stressful. So let's start with GDP, Soledad. Last week's GDP reading showed that the economy contracted for the second quarter in a row. And now under some circumstances, that would pretty much be the definition of a recession. But there are a lot of economists and other experts arguing that particularly because of the still strong jobs market, and it is still strong despite the fact that the number of job openings in the U.S., fell by 5.3% from May to June. These folks are arguing this is not what you'd call a classic recession. It's it's actually the flip side of what we saw during the beginning of COVID, where a very steep one-quarter decline was declared to be a recession, which it usually wouldn't. Usually you'd have to have those two quarters, to which I'm sure many people are wondering, who says? Who gets to say whether this is or is not a recession. Well, there are eight economists, just eight. They form the Business Cycle Dating Committee. I know that's a pretty wonky term, which is part of the National Bureau of Economic Research. And these folks consider a number of factors in addition to whether an economy expands or contracts. And those include unemployment and wage levels and investment. And as Alanis Morissette might say, isn't it ironic? They may not be able to tell us that we're in a recession until that recession is over. Last week, we also got an interest rate hike of three quarters of a percentage point, a top three other interest rate hikes earlier in the year. And those interest rate hikes, some folks, including the folks at Morningstar, are starting to opine are leading the economy to slow enough that it should allow us to stave off recession. And so with all of that in mind, the final data point I want to actually take a look at this week is the market. We didn't just have a pretty good week last week. We had a pretty good month in July. The market basically came roaring back. The NASDAQ was up 12%. In July, it recovered about a third of what it had lost earlier in the year. The Dow was up almost 7%. The S&P was up 9%. And this is why, as all the advisors from EFE have been 
emphasizing week after week after week, we do not sell into a down market because you're never sure when these sort of reversals are going to happen. And I should also point out that there was little in terms of economic news to support these gains, which is just another reminder, as we've said before on this show, that the market is not the economy. They are two very different things that move into very different ways. Let's bring in Rose Young. She's a EFE wealth planner from Atlanta. She's been on this show many, many times. Thank you for having me. I just wanted to touch back on what Jean was saying about that financial plan B. Uh, while I agree that just few of us, just a few, win the lottery, I do meet clients every day who, who navigate their own financial windfalls. Maybe this is an inheritance or an early retirement offer, which is becoming uh, popular in certain segments of the economy. The sale of a house, right? I mean, people are making a killing in, on real estate in some cases, or even the sale of your company, all of which can raise big questions similar to that lottery winner's questions. How much should I spend? How, how much do I need to put away? What are the tax consequences of getting such a windfall? As well as, you know, just something simple as, uh, can this help me retire a little bit earlier? So whether your numbers are measured in billions or even thousands, this is precisely why a wealth planner is needed. Because that good fortune may just come with some strings attached. Rose, you make a great point. Let's switch gears now. You know, Rose, this economy alone, the markets and the topsy-turvy inflation numbers and the possibility of a recession... It's a lot to deal with. So can you walk us through the process that you're taking clients through right now with their individual plans to show them how to deal with all of these factors at once? Absolutely. So first, our number one job, my number one job is to make sure that I am protecting my clients' plans. I always tell my clients that I will protect their plan even from them. Um, There is a reason why we've built them the way we have. If we build financial plans without taking into account that there may be a recession, that there may be several bear markets, we have not done our jobs. The financial plans we build for our clients have to span decades, right, from the period where you found your first job and are starting to save and accumulate for retirement to that period post-retirement where you are on your spend-down period and, and worrying about things like running out of money. And I also have to say that the work kind of begins when we are getting to know each other. That's when we start preparing our clients for a possibility of a recession. We make sure that we set expectations during that stage. We walk our clients and prospective clients through their individual plans and show them how a down market, inflation, or even a recession has been built in to make sure that, uh, you know, they stay on track regardless of what's going on in the environment, in the economy around them. We also try to use historical data to put recessions into perspective. Post-World War II, the average recession is 11.1 months, and this is due in large to, you know, FDIC protections, preventing banks from failure and things of that sort. But also, how often does a recession happen? We all like to think of those really big ones, like the 2001s and the 2008. But in average, post-World War II, there is a recession about every five years or so. 
Hey, Rose, we're going to stop you there. We're going to dive deeper into that question that Soledad asked before about whether money can buy happiness. But if you don't feel like your plan is working for you right now, if you feel as if you should be using your money to get you closer to your goals, one of which might be happiness... Uh, you can pick up the phone and call one of Rose's colleagues over at Edelman Financial Engines at 833-PLAN-EFE or planefe.com. Is your retirement withdrawal strategy built for a looming recession? Do you know which accounts to draw from first? What are the common pitfalls? How can you minimize your tax bite? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for a timely virtual event, Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. You can register for free at planefe.com. They'll look for financial pitfalls to avoid and how to help make sure your financial plan is built to last. Whether it's sequence of withdrawals, whether to start taking Social Security or stay diversified, They'll help you understand the specific steps that you can take to make sure your financial plan is working for you. Join Edelman Financial Engines for Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. So register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien here along with Gene Chatsky. You're listening to Everyday Wealth, sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Joining us today is Rose Young. She's an EFE wealth planner from Hotlanta. And uh, I think it's uh, fair to say we're in a recession um, ish. Maybe that's the official way to put it, because you don't necessarily know till you're out of the recession. If we're looking at this data now, has the window closed to prepare for a recession that might be coming? And has the window closed just to pile on to that question, Rose? For you to put your money to work, right? If you're looking at a market that has already popped, should people be saying, oh, I missed it? So I'll start with Soledad's question first. Uh, No, we can always continue to do things to better our position. One way of preparing for an upcoming recession is revisiting your risk preferences, right? Using dollar cost averaging to get into these uh, volatile market actively rebalancing your account. Um, and all of that is part of the value of an advisor. And to Jean's point, have you missed the window to invest during this time being that, you know, all these gains that the Dow S&P and NASDAQ have made? The answer is no. You know, there's this popular Chinese proverb that says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is now. So basically in the context of missing out, No, you have not missed out. If you want to be successful in the future, if you want to grow in the future, the best time to act is always now. Lots of people are not really behaving like they're in a recession. People are stressed, at least some of them. So obviously, if you're stressed, you're not happy, which brings us to the question, can money buy happiness? There is so much research on this and so much of it points to what you just said, that If you are not making enough 
money to live comfortably, any additional dollar is 100% going to be additive to your happiness. And there were a couple of studies that pointed to $75,000 a year as the amount of money needed to achieve that happiness. But we've got some newer studies that actually say, eh, really more is better. There was a 2021 paper that was authored by Matthew Killingsworth. He's from UC Berkeley. It looked at 1.7 million reports from over 33,000 employed adults. And it found that happiness and well-being does increase as people earn more. And what was so striking about this study was that It measured people's happiness at different points throughout the day. It would just call people and say, are you happy right now? And line that up with the amount of money that they were making and found that happiness did increase. But you know what takes happiness down is this tendency that we have to compare ourselves to others, this keeping up with the Joneses that we are all doing on Instagram and other platforms makes us miserable. And so, Rose, I'm I'm wondering when you put all of this together, all this research, you know, stir it together in one big soup, what do you get? Yeah, you get uh, not a steady level of happiness for most people because that keeping up with the Joneses can also be a trap. I do get lots of questions from clients who they go, so how do I compare to your other clients, right? And then my answer always is, If you want to retire in the woods, live off the land, you know, you will require a lot less than me who wants to retire in Hawaii. So uh, financial (laughs) planning is is personal and it really does not matter what your neighbors are doing or even what the market is doing if you are on track to reaching your goals. If you are not sure whether you are on track, now would be a good time to contact a planner like one from EFE uh, to make sure that you do that check. So then, of course, that leads to the next question, right? Can you have this happiness slash money equation if we're in, at the very least, a bear market, but possibly a recession, you know, where it feels like you're spending more than you ever thought you would and you're looking at financial news and it's stressing you out? Is that just not possible. We had John McCafferty on the show not too long ago, and he's another EFE wealth planner. And he talked about prospect theory, which I had I'd never heard about, but The Atlantic did a, a pretty good article about this idea that bad economic times have a bigger effect on your mood than good economic times. You're more likely to be stressed, not necessarily more likely to be joyful and happy in comparison. And so, you know, losses bring you down more than gains will bring you up. Yes, that is a great point, Soledad. You know, everybody reports it when prices go up. Everybody's been talking about how gas prices have been going up. I haven't been hearing as many reports that they've been coming down. And and even if they are, it doesn't just make you feel as happy that they are coming down because you've just experienced that upside. And this can also be translated to the stock market, right? We will talk about those daily losses uh, way more than we necessarily celebrate Uh, you know, those rallies. So when this sort of bad news is dominating the headlines, Rose, what do we do? What kind of actions can we take to make sure that that they don't get in the way of our financial happiness, that they don't just sabotage our moods? Beyond crying, of course. Right. Well, (laughs) that. 
So first, uh, let's stop checking our accounts on a daily basis, right? We're not day traders and the current volatility will just ratchet that stress level that you have. Take control. Talk to your planner. If your planner has not reached out to you, maybe it's time to shop for a new one. Because when my clients call in to have a meeting, uh, we make sure that we walk them through their personal plan. What is going on with it? How are they doing during these stormy days? And have really frank conversations around the steps that they need to take. I truly believe that we feel a lot less stress when we have some level of control within the areas that are causing that stress, right? So building a plan that is directly tied to you, your goals, your dreams, your legacy, that's ultimately what you can control. So I will encourage everyone to make sure that they have a financial plan that is fit for them. And remember, if you don't have one, the first step is a phone call. That's one thing you can control. 833-PLAN-EFE or at planefe.com. Another one is to pay down some of that debt, especially that high interest credit card debt, because if interest rates are going up, that interest is just going to continue to go up. And then you get that sense of satisfaction that I've accomplished something that'll relieve some of that stress. Another great idea is making sure that you booster your emergency fund, right? One of the biggest things that happened during recessions is unemployment. So just so that you don't have to sit there pining over, am I going to be one of those people who get a pink slip? Having a plan in place, controlling those controllables today is always a great idea. Is your retirement withdrawal strategy built for a looming recession? Do you know which accounts to draw from first? What are the common pitfalls? How can you minimize your tax bite? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for a timely virtual event, Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. You can register for free at planefe.com. They'll look for financial pitfalls to avoid and how to help make sure your financial plan is built to last. Whether it's sequence of withdrawals, whether to start taking Social Security or stay diversified, they'll help you understand the specific steps that you can take to make sure your financial plan is working for you. Join Edelman Financial Engines for Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. So register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com. So we started our show today talking about the recent numbers that came out last week on second quarter GDP growth, which didn't grow, actually. It contracted. And we've been talking with Rose Nyang, a wealth planner with Edelman Financial Engines, about what that means for all of you. Rose gave us some great insights, as she always does. And if you'd like to be working with a wealth planner like Rose, who will just tell it to you straight and make sure that you understand what she's saying, well, you can work with one of over 300 EFE wealth planners across the country. You can reach them, of course, by calling 833-PLAN-EFE or visiting planefe.com. 
Look, the standard, the basic definition for a recession is two back-to-back quarters of GDP contraction, which is just a fancy way of saying that people are buying less. The economy is not growing. It's shrinking, which is entirely understandable if you look at everything else that's going on in our economy right now. Inflation is high. Our purchasing power is not. And I think we're all looking for a solution that can help us spend smarter or at least spend in a way that doesn't make us cringe, which is why I'm so excited about our next guest. Joining us is Michael Norton. He is co-author of the book, Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. He co-authored the book with Elizabeth Dunn. And Michael is the Harold M. Brearley Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. He's a member of Harvard's Behavioral Insights Group. And his TED Talk, How to Buy Happiness, has been viewed more than four and a half million times. Hey, Mike, we are so excited that you are here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you both. You start your TED Talk, Mike, by pointing out all the people who say money can't buy you happiness. And then you, you right from the, the get-go, you're like, they're wrong. <laughs> they're completely wrong. Explain to us why they're wrong. Yeah, I think one of the things that Liz Dunn, my co-author, and I really thought from the very beginning is that basically it's not the money that makes you happy or not. So like you fill out your taxes at the end of every year and you have some numbers on that and that was your income. But two people who make the same amount of money, you know, their taxes look exactly the same, doesn't mean they have the same life at all. And it's obvious, and yet we didn't really think of it that way. So it really is not how much you have, but what you're doing with the money that really matters so much. And it's not that money is the key to happiness, meaning the more you have, you know, your life is perfect. But it does mean that when we're spending money, we often spend it on things that aren't, they're not really ruining our lives, but they're not really making us much happier. And all we really try to do is say, hey, can we find other ways that people can spend their money that might actually give them a little more happiness? Is that because people buy things, right? What, you know, whenever you ask people, and I know you, you obviously as a researcher do this a lot, you say, you know, so you win the lottery. What do you do? You know, most people will tick off, well, first I get a really fancy car and then I'm going to buy my mom a house and buy myself a house and I'm going to buy this and this and this. Is, is that the, the, the gist of the problem? I think it's it's part of it that when we get money, the first thing we think is a thing very often that I'd like to get something typically for myself. Even, for example, if you think about buying a new house, that's great. I mean, I like nice houses too. I think we all like nice houses. But when you do that, you often move. And maybe you were in a neighborhood that you loved and you knew your neighbors and you were really close to them. But now you're in a completely new community and you don't know anybody. So again, it's like buying the house isn't wrong. It's a nice house. But it's really what the money's doing to your life overall that's really going to determine how happy you really are. When you focus in on your TED Talk, and I, I had watched it before, I rewatched it before we, we sat down to do this interview, you basically divide happy people and unhappy people by their behavior, right? And you're saying those people who use money for pro-social rather than anti-social behaviors, using money to either get together with others or to do something for others are happier. So first of all, what's the difference between pro-social and anti-social and why does this work? 
I do. I divide people. Even when I walk down the street, I just point at people and say, you're good. <laughs> you're bad. And I, <laughs> I do it, it. I do it in I my own it. household, too. I used I to do it, it just in my head, but now I actually point at people and yell at them. Judgy. So don't Very come judgy. to Cambridge. I like that. That's why Soledad <laughs> likes you, by the way. She's judgier than I am. <laughs> so true. So true. Um, I think that... So let's think about buying things again or buying stuff for yourself. So we do these experiments, for example, where we give people money and tell them to go buy a coffee. Some people, though, we say, go buy a coffee and drink it yourself. And other people, we say, go buy a coffee and give it to somebody else. Just as, as simple as that, you know, just $5, $4 coffee, whatever they cost now. Getting a free coffee for yourself is great. You know, I, I would like a free coffee right now. Nobody would turn down a free coffee. But if you think about you have a free coffee at 9 o'clock in the morning, at 5 p.m. or 10 p.m., would you really still be happy because you had that coffee? No, you probably had nine other coffees over the course of the day as well. The one coffee didn't do much. But when you buy a coffee and give it to somebody else, think how different an act that is. It could be a coworker, It could be a family member. Some people just turn around in line and give, it, give a coffee to the person behind them in line. What happens then? People say you're nice. They smile at you. They say thank you. You feel good about it. You often still get your own coffee anyway because you're going to drink coffee. But the act of just even the small amounts, just instead of doing business as usual, which is buying stuff, which isn't wrong. It's not bad. Of course, we all need to buy stuff for ourselves. But this little shift toward a little more spending on others, whether it's people we know or charities or strangers, those are the things that seem to last a little longer. They matter a little more, in part because we just don't do them that much. When I was in college, my college boyfriend's family won the lottery. And he was from a very poor family. His mom had to work three jobs to send him to Harvard. And they won the lottery. And it wasn't, you know, what, did someone just win a billion dollars? It wasn't that. (laughs) But it was $11 million. And it was so interesting for me. And we bought stuff. I mean, I didn't because I had no money. I was a college student. <laughs> but but I went along while stuff was being purchased on somebody else's money. And uh, cars, um, a very nice BMW, uh, jewelry, um, you know, paying off some from some debt, obviously. And it was interesting to me, though, to see how much the social fabric was was literally wrecked. Like his, his grandpa, who used to play cards for pennies. You know, that's how those guys spent their entire afternoon. Like no one ever wanted to play for pennies with a guy who now had $11 million, right? So it just completely ruined his social life. Um, It ruined the family dynamic, right? You had people, do you give a chunk of money to someone who's struggling? Mm -hmm. Um, Not financially struggling, but maybe struggling with some other issues that money would be more problematic than solution for. So it was just so interesting to watch that all play out. All things you talk about in your TED Talk, and you're you're nodding vigorously for those who can't see you. It's actually just my laptop is moving up and down. (laughs) I disagree very strongly with everything you said. No, it's such a great example because even some of the categories you said, you said they bought a car, they bought other stuff. You also said, though, that they paid down debt. So if you think about how they're using the money, they're using it in very different ways on different things. Paying down debt actually does improve your happiness. It's a great thing to kind of cancel your ledger and not have that worry. So some categories are fantastic if you use the lottery winnings for that. You really would be better off. Other categories, though, don't pay off that much, like cars and houses don't seem to really matter that much. But I think you hit at the the exact real problem, which is that, again, it isn't the money itself. It's what it does to your life. I interviewed a lottery winner years ago who I still think of who said after he won the lottery, he felt like a walking dollar sign. 
Mm. Everyone, first off, everyone he ever met, ever, <laughs> even for a minute, reached out on Facebook or called him up and said, hey, how you doing? And then he said, good. And then they said, give me some money. Basically, that was his life. And it was his kids. And it was his spouse. And it was his extended family, just like with your experience with your boyfriend, right? So it changes the fabric. And the worst part of all is that in the United States, most often to redeem these lottery winnings, you have to go in the media and hold a big check that says $5 million, $11 million, whatever it is. And then everybody who ever knew you actually sees you. In some countries, it's anonymous. So you can win the lottery, keep it quiet, carry on with your life the way it was. Again, it's the same amount of money, but the public versus private, the social versus not, of course, has a huge impact on how much we end up happy. Is your retirement withdrawal strategy built for a looming recession? Do you know which accounts to draw from first? What are the common pitfalls? How can you minimize your tax bite? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for a timely virtual event, Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. You can register for free at planefe.com. They'll look for financial pitfalls to avoid and how to help make sure your financial plan is built to last. Whether it's sequence of withdrawals, whether to start taking Social Security or stay diversified, they'll help you understand the specific steps that you can take to make sure your financial plan is working for you. Join Edelman Financial Engines for Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. So register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com. We are talking with Mike Norton. He is the co-author of Happy Money, The Science of Happier Spending. Mike, I want to go back to the experiences that, that Soledad talked about before, because there is a lot of research out there that says if you want to be happier, spend your money on experiences rather than on things. Do experiences work because we tend to do them with other people, whether it's a vacation or whether it's I don't know. A class. A class or 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 whatever it happens to be. Is it because we don't tend to climb rocks by ourselves? It's part of it for sure. So I think, you know, if you buy something for yourself, sometimes you use that thing with other people. But, you know, if it's shoes or a new phone or whatever, it's really about you and you're going to use it all by yourself. Experiences are kind of like a commitment device to other people. We do for sure have experiences that aren't with other people, but more often than not, they get us out of the house. Whether it's a, you know, even just lunch with a friend is better than lunch by yourself but also these other kinds of experiences that you mentioned as well. So the social part is very important for experiences. But the other part is actually that experiences over time kind of add up to tell us who we are. So Anat Keenan at Boston University has this fascinating research on, she calls it the experiential CV, the experiential resume. And basically in our lives, we're collecting experiences that tell us who we are. This is why people do these crazy races where they get electric shocks and run through ice water and stuff like that, because we're trying to find things that tell us who we are. Then you can say, let me tell you about the first time I left the country. Let me tell you about the first day at college. Let me tell you about the first time I left my hometown. You very rarely say, let me tell you about the first TV I bought. 
It's just a well, you don't know. <laughs> very weird. You mind if you grew up with my father? I was about to say, yeah, you clearly don't have the same friends we have. They literally will talk your ear off about the first TV they bought wow. and all the details. I'm so but sorry. Here's my question. I know it's, it is a sad. Oh, come thing. on, it was a, it, for my father <laughs> buying that first TV. He worked in TV his whole life and and studied it, and that was that was a highlight. So he taught people about TV, which means for him it was a pro social experience. So there you go. But it sounds to me when you talk about what you get out of an experience, it's different than what you get out of giving away money. So how come that seems to resonate um, uh, as a value for people um, who who are using their money that way and, and seems to be better, I guess, than than buying a new sweater or something? And how much do you actually have to write the check for in order to get the benefit? Mm. Yeah, so I, in our research, one thing that we – it would be not very helpful or interesting research if we said giving away a billion dollars makes you extremely happy <laughs> because <laughs> leaves most of us out of the game. So one of the things we really tried to do from early on is use small amounts of money to see if small amounts could make a difference. $5, $20, you know, buying a coffee for someone else, that's a very small purchase. We wanted to see if that could even have an impact. Now, buying a coffee for somebody else – it might make you happy that day. That's what our research shows. It's not going to change your life. You're not going to be a perfect 10 happy because you bought one coffee. So small things can matter for our happiness for sure. They don't necessarily instantly change our lives. But the idea is that even the small amounts, if you do them more habitually, so if you shift more of your spending toward giving to others and more of your spending toward experiences when you're on the margin of what to do, over time, those changes, even though each one is small, maybe can add up to more happiness. And Soledad, your point about the experiences versus giving, they do actually work in very different ways. And the research shows that. So giving seems to make us feel like a warm glow is is the word we use. Literally, you kind of feel like I did a good thing today. It also just makes you feel like you did anything. So if if you think about our days, at the end of the day, what did you do? I have no idea. I answered a thing and did a thing. Giving actually makes us feel like we had an impact. I did something for someone else, and it counts. And that's a big reason why those make us happy. Experiences aren't like that, though. Experiences are very different. They sort of are interesting to us, to who we are. They connect us with others. So different kinds of spending can make us happier in very different ways, actually. And we've been trying to unpack all those different ways over time. What about using our money to buy back some time? Says a woman who just came back from vacation, I'd like well, to point out. <laughs> and, and I used I used some money to buy time off the grid, right? I mean, that that was as you are going to do when you leave this studio today, right? In approximately two and a half hours. So right back at you. Why didn't I get any time off? I thought we were, if we're all doing it. <laughs> You're working in the wrong place, Mike. <laughs> that may be true. Um, my colleague at Harvard Business School, Ashley Willens, is, is the expert in using money to buy time. And one of the things that she really shows is that um, if you think about buying time, you know, we would all maybe like a staff of, of, you know, 20 people in our house who help us with everything we do. Again, of course, just like we can't give away a billion dollars, we can't all afford a staff, even even if we might like one. But we can do small things with our money. So she, again, looks at things like um, even if you're income constrained, if you think about, you know, instead of buying a couple coffees, if you use that money instead to buy a babysitter for one hour, even just one hour. If you have ever had a, new, a newborn baby, you know that one hour 
can be, it can feel subjectively like 12 years when it's the hour that you need. And so buying time, it, it is good to use it to buy vacations and things like that. But it's also these small little things every day. Again, that if you shift some money toward those instead of toward something else, you can see how even the tiniest effect, the tiniest change in time could completely change your day if it's that day when you really need that hour, even just to, to crash on the couch. It's one of the reasons I'm kind of in love with uh, Mackenzie Bezos, uh, although I've never met her. <laughs> I've only seen her on TV. So, But I just love that she's got this giant pile of money and she's giving it away in really real amounts in areas where she can have impact. It just seems like such a great blueprint for how to do it. So I'm curious, is there a, a number that makes it, you know, where you see a difference in how people feel? I'm so glad you asked that because it is actually when we look at the data. So if you think about if you download your credit card statement and start categorizing everything, and some of it at least is, you know, a gift for a friend or a donation to charity. We can actually do like an audit of your credit card statement. Not are not are you being financially wise, but are you spending on things that make you happy? And it turns out that it's not the amount of money that you spend on other people. It's the percent of what you have. Oh. <laughs> so um, I bet for her, she does need to give away an enormous amount of money because otherwise it's it's nothing to her. But for people, you know, with lower income... Small amounts of money, that's a lot of money, and it does actually predict how happy you are. And we've looked with richer and poorer people. We've looked in countries with higher and lower GDP. And across all of these, it still seems to see the, the percent of what you have, the act of giving, is what produces the happiness. And we haven't really seen, I think, luckily in a sense, that there's a threshold below which giving money doesn't seem to matter that much. Anecdotally, I have often... Because I travel on the New York City subway system, I feel like I have my PhD in this. <laughs> um, but anecdotally, when you see someone who's asking for money, the people who give a dollar or two are always poor people. And if you ask people in poverty, like, gosh, like, why are you clearly who doesn't have a lot of money giving away this big portion of kind of what you have? Um, they'll tell you, you know, I've been there. I totally, I, I've, I've so been in this person's position. I understand what this dollar or two can do. Um, so it seems to prove your point about the percentage of does kind of add value. Is there a best way to give for people who might have a chunk of money? Do you set it aside? Do you think about it um, with a structure? You know, like, hey, we're going to, we have $200,000 and we're going to give it away in this way consistently in a program, if you will, uh, every month. Is there a way that's that's better or that you've seen is most effective? If you look at the, the charities that you give to, if you kind of audit those charities, are those the charities that you care absolutely the most about in the world? Some are and some are not because some are random. You know, a coworker was doing a race and came to your office and said, will you sign this thing for me? And there's no way to say no because it's your coworker. And then now you're giving to that charity. So you, and which is great, I mean, we should all give to charity. I don't mean it like that. But you didn't actually sit back and think, how much money am I going to give to charity this year? And what are the ones that I really care about? It turns out, for example, that charities that we have a deep personal connection with give us more meaning when we give to them. So if you have a family member who suffers from a disease, it is the case that if you can give to that charity, that's more meaningful for you. But, and people sometimes shift to that and they sometimes don't. So really trying to think about what aligns with your values 
And it could be a charity, but it could be a friend. It could be a family member, could be a faith organization. You know, whatever is important for you and your values, that's where we should be trying to divert this giving. Well, and that's where we should be trying to divert our spending too, right? I mean, I've gone through the exercise and had other people go through the exercise where you take that same credit card statement at the end of the month and you go through and you ask yourself, would I have made these purchases again or would I make these purchases again? And you see, you start to see what you do care about. You start to see what where your values actually line up. Mike is nodding again, which makes me feel really good. <laughs> I, I know you've got five principles of happy money, five five takeaways that that we can um, we can pass along to this audience. Can you take us through those? Sure. So we've we've touched on two. One is this idea of um, using money for experiences instead of stuff and things. Uh, the second is the giving that we've discussed rather than spending on yourself, giving to others. And actually, sorry, we've touched on a third, which is buying time, using your money to buy time, that one-hour babysitter. Those three are uh, people tend to understand and like those because they've done them before. The other two are a little bit, I think, subtler One's easy to implement and one's hard. So the easy one uh, is, we called it make it a treat. And it's very simple, which is just if you really love something, just give it up for a little while. And then come back to it. What? Wait, what? And it will be amazing. (laughs) What? And a lot of the research that we do, one of the things most religions have is that you give up something for a period of time. The thing and the time vary, but there's a taking away and then coming back. You think about, you know, if you can't have bread for a day, bread is amazing after you couldn't have it. You know, even over the course of a day or a week or weeks like that. So you actually, what happens is when we like something a lot, we consume it all the time. It could be, you know, TV show, binge watching, or it could be food. And the more we consume something, it's not that we don't still like it. It just starts to wear off a little bit. You know, like if you're eating a chocolate cake, it's terrific. But the 17th bite, it's still good. It's chocolate cake, but... Maybe it's enough already. But if you stop and then come back to the chocolate cake tomorrow, you get to start all over again and it's great. So there is this idea, you know, if you give up coffee for a week, you would have enjoyed all the coffees. But that first coffee back is like heaven because you haven't had coffee. And the net happiness can be higher when you give things up. I said that's easy to implement because all it means is not spending money for a while. It's incredibly hard to implement because it works the best if we give up the things we like the most. And that's a whole other problem that we have to struggle with in life in general. So that's four things on our list. What's number five? Number five is is one that's difficult for a couple of reasons because the world is kind of conspiring against us to not let us do this. So we call this principle, pay now, consume later. And the world likes to encourage us to consume now and pay later, the exact opposite. So we now, you know, with a click of a button, we can watch any movie or any show that's ever existed, read any book that's ever existed. If we need something, we can get it usually the next day delivered to us. So we really have this. And I mean, those are amazing innovations. I don't mean to, you know, say downplay that they're amazing. But what they do is they get us into a consume now kind of mindset. And we just talked about how when you wait for things like the coffee for a week and you come back, Not only does the coffee taste great, but there's this little emotion that's called anticipation. And anticipation is an amazing feeling. There's research that shows that when people go on a vacation, if you ask them like the week before every day, the week of the vacation every day, the week after, how happy are you? 
For many people, the happiest day is the day before they leave. Oh my God, my vacation is starting in two hours and I am extremely happy you right see? now. And you're imagining how great it will be. And, yes, and you I think am. about, I'll be like, we've done sort of, you know, people think of themselves on the beach and, you know, they look great. And also everyone around them looks great. <laughs> then you go to the beach and I don't look great and not, you know, the other. so, you know, we have these, I can't wait for vacation. It's going to be perfect. And then, you know, vac- vacations are great, actually, the day to show. But that anticipation is so important and so valuable. Kids before their birthdays, you know, the, the, the joy and excitement of waiting to consume is just huge. And we tend to not build that in. And then the paying now versus paying later, credit cards, of course, encourage us to pay later for everything. We just kind of swipe it and the bill comes later. And that's debt. We talked earlier about how debt can really affect our happiness. When you consume something that you haven't quite paid for, it weighs on you a little bit. It kind of interferes with the enjoyment of it. And my favorite example of doing it the other way is prepaid cruises. When you pay upfront, sometimes like a year before, and then you go on the cruise. And what do people say after the cruise? They say it was amazing. Everything was free. Well, that's how I felt about my trip for my 50th birthday because I didn't want to get credit card bills. And so I just saved the money before we went, put it in an account. It was it was done. And yes, you're right. It, it did. It felt free. But my question about this whole idea of pay now, consume later, isn't that just another word for saving? I mean, and saving is hard for all of the different reasons that that you've mentioned. But is it just saving with a specific goal in mind? And, and shouldn't we by this logic, be trying to be anticipatory about things like retirement. I absolutely agree. I think the first thing is that a lot of the research we do, the starting point is that people are going to spend money full stop. And so given that they've decided to spend, how can we help them spend it in ways that are better? But you're absolutely right that there's a pre-step to that, which is You don't have to spend the money all the time. You could save the money. Getting out of debt is good for your happiness. One of the issues with saving is it tends to not be very um, rewarding in the moment. Obviously, the way vacations and buying a friend lunch are rewarding in the moment. So we actually have been trying to think about how we can make saving more emotionally evocative, to give us more happiness. And one of the things we've done, to your point, is when you save into accounts that are, for example, for experiences – you tend to be a little bit better about saving into them and a little bit better about not withdrawing from them. So we do have this sense in ourselves that we, we can help ourselves to save if we're saving for something that's really important to us that we really care about. But when our savings go into an account that has a, a you know account number that's 27 digits and that's it, it's not surprising that people say, that's not that interesting. Maybe I won't, I won't save. Yeah, it doesn't give you the... The little fuzzy and the little buzz of joy that you get. They got you got to attach it to some kind of little freebie. People will go crazy for some little gift that even if it's not valuable in any real way, that is an indication that they've done something. So I always think you have to attach it to that. You you many years ago now, I mean almost like ten years ago, you talked about the IKEA effect. Um, and I, I wasn't sure what specific part of like you're referring to because I go the for meatballs. the – I was going to say like by eating a lot of delicious Swedish meatballs. What's the IKEA effect and how does that play a role in happiness? I would love if the project was determining the right number of Swedish meatballs for happiness. That's sort of like now some that's curve. research. That's Harvard level. Come on, guys. Get on it. 
the aspect we were interested in was the aspect where you build stuff yourself. Uh, that that part of their business model is, as we all know, that you build the furniture yourself or the products yourself. And many people express great frustration at building things themselves because they can't do the thing and the thing breaks and they jam the other thing <laughs> into the thing. But actually, the our research and other research shows that there's something about making things yourself that really does imbue them with a different kind of value. It's why people have like a lumpy mug that they made in high school and they carry it with them for the rest of their life or a terrible watercolor, you know, that they painted at some point or people so have judgy. tables. So well, I'm referring to myself. <laughs> Just to be clear, I have no artistic talent or a bookshelf or a hat rack. You know, we, we make these things and we keep them because they're so important to us. It's not that they look great, but that they create a value for us because we did it. We made it. It's part of us, and that's great. And so even with IKEA furniture, it's true that you're frustrated when you make it, but compared to that same thing that somebody else put together, you still kind of like yours a little bit more. There's a little tag when we make things ourselves that we just have more meaning in them. And you can say it's a, like a mistake because the thing's crooked, or you can say it's kind of a gift because we get to enjoy the things we made. We're built so that when we pour ourselves into things, we get a benefit out of them later. And typically parents say, oh, that's what parenting is, by the way, <laughs> that you just <laughs> all of your effort goes to your kids. And then your brain says, I must really love these people if I'm doing <laughs> all of this no for them. Sense. Right. <laughs> I think we have to decide how literally to take you with Ikea, because my husband and I have decided that we will never put together furniture again because we will get divorced. Like we will we will just it it is not good for our marriage, but we will do things like make a misshapen pizza mm -hmm. and I do have the cutting board that I made in fifth grade shop to this day. At the end of your TED talk, you mentioned donors choose, which I think is a great organization because you can give $5 and that actually does go a long way to helping a teacher. Often five bucks does buy a book for a kid. It does actually help that teacher move the needle and invest in students. And I think that's a really, really great organization. So I was very happy that you gave a shout out to them in your TED talk to those three million people who watched your TED talk. Four and a half. Oh, is it up to four and a half now? Four and a half. Wow. Just as yeah. we've That's been talking, another million people. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. You know what? Gene and I say, you are welcome for us pushing your TED Talk. <laughs> Thank you for your time and thank you for allowing us to, to pepper you with all these questions. I really do think people, especially people who've made it in some way, right, are an executive, are financially comfortable. Um, I think, you know, they, they are, we are trying to solve those questions around what makes you happy? What makes a full life? Is it just, you know, the dollars? Uh, you know, if I just get another, if I save another $2 million, it's all going to be worth it. Or, you know, what is the, what are the pieces of a full and valuable and valued happy life? And I think this is, goes a long way to helping people solve that. So thank you. Thank you. Is your retirement withdrawal strategy built for a looming recession? Do you know which accounts to draw from first? What are the common pitfalls? How can you minimize your tax bite? Join Edelman Financial Engines on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern for a timely virtual event, Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. You can register for free at planefe.com 
They'll look for financial pitfalls to avoid and how to help make sure your financial plan is built to last. Whether it's sequence of withdrawals, whether to start taking Social Security or stay diversified, they'll help you understand the specific steps that you can take to make sure your financial plan is working for you. Join Edelman Financial Engines for recession and your retirement withdrawal strategy on Tuesday, August 16th at 2 p.m. or 8 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend and no obligation. So register now at planefe.com. That's planefe.com. Soledad, let's bring Rose Young back into this conversation because what Michael was saying, an awful lot of his advice really needs to be filtered through the relationship that a financial planner may have with a client. It really is, how do you think differently about how you're going to spend your money, which might be giving it away or spending it on somebody else? Um, you know, charity is just different spending. So, Rose, I know you were you were listening to this conversation. What, what do you think? How does it apply to your relationships with your clients? So that is right that it is ultimately about spending. And as we were talking about in the beginning of the show, wanting to make it uh, as joyful as possible, as fulfilling as possible, as stressless as possible. One of those points is knowing how much you can give, right? Michael stressed a lot about the fact that when you give, you have all these happy feelings about it. Uh, we also don't want to overgive to where it can cause some stress, right? So this goes back to the initial conversations that we have with our prospective clients, uh, framing their financial plan uh, in terms of the goals that they want to accomplish. A lot of people that we get want to come uh, out of the gate talking about the rate of return, for example, that they want to get. My point always is it doesn't matter if you're getting 10% or 2% if it's not helping you achieve your goals. So when we frame the conversation around when you want to retire, when you retire, where do you want to spend your time? Who do you want to spend your time with? Uh, how do you want to give your money? What sort of a legacy do you want to give behind? It even makes that financial planning conversation a lot easier because it is about those dreams, that delayed gratification that, that Michael has mentioned, that anticipation is created uh, that he has mentioned because this money is being used as a tool to help you achieve these goals that are so, so valuable to you. So going back to that conversation we had earlier about controlling what you can control, this is an aspect you can control, redefining your goals, aligning your goals to this tool, this money, this pot of money that you have does bring you more happiness because you now have clarity, you, you know what you can accomplish, you know what you cannot. And if you still have time, you know the steps that you need to take in order to get there. Do you ever tell people, advise your clients to think about giving earlier 
you know, a lot of people look at financial planning and say, you know, and then when you're 99, right before you die, you can take some of that money that you've saved and give it away. I mean, when we did our first financial plan, we just were reviewing it. So I, I remember some of the details now. I think we were like, when the kids are 50, we will trust them to get access. <laughs> and Brad and I are like, yeah, we did not have a lot of faith in those toddlers when we did this first plan. And so we're now kind of revising it and thinking more about that giving away part, whether it's to an official charity or to uh, things that we just support or to our own children or other people's children. Like, we want to do it sooner. You know, we want to do it now and not right eight seconds before I die. No, absolutely. I think last time I was on the show, actually, we talked about that legacy, that witnessing your legacy. It ties into what Michael was saying uh, about that feeling of, of giving. So this is why also Soledad, uh, as you know, financial planning is not one and done, right? Those who are, you know, in that accumulation stage of their lives that putting all of the things together are probably thinking a little bit less about giving right now as those who are retired, maybe comfortable a couple of years into retirement. And so that's absolutely a conversation that we have with our clients, but also how do you do it in the right way? That's when we can bring in, uh, you know, our estate planning team to just make sure that they're not stepping on any landmines uh, as they are trying to give their their wealth uh, away and, and witness that uh, as well. That's what I love so much about part of Michael's message was that it's the act of giving and not always the amount of giving that makes the the happiness difference, that, that you can do this continually throughout your life, that you should try to make it habitual because it it is one of the things proven to add to your underlying happiness and well-being. Oh. And I resonated with that so much. Um, so my grandmother passed away in 2020. She lived a long life. But one of the legacies she gave all of us, her grandchildren, because we used to spend every summer with her. Uh, and even I lived with her for a moment while my parents immigrated to the U.S., was the legacy of giving. So to this day, and this is not a woman who, who had a lot of money necessarily, but she was a woman that walking to the market will give on the way. So to, to Soledad's point, those who gave those $2, I mean, one time I witnessed her go cash her little pension check, and she must have given away half of this on the way home. So to this day, every pay period, I only know it's a pay period because I have to go to the bank and withdraw $100. For the, for anybody that's on the street to give. And that is something that I, that I've learned from my grandmother. And I still get that happiness. Now, to Michael's point, now I have to give a little bit more than a few dollars to feel good about it. Uh, but I still do it, right? And I, and I, and I watch my kids witness it and then they want to do it. So, so it definitely can be part of that legacy building as well to give the, 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 the gift of giving, uh, you know, to your children. I love that example of literally just doing it consistently. Um, and not necessarily giant checks with lots of zeros in them, but just consistently doing it. Uh, we never spoke about this really, but and no strings attached, right? You're right. just giving it. There's no, and here's what I need from you. Here's what I expect back. Here's a category it has to go into. And I think that plays a big role as well. Rose, great advice as always. Always nice to hang out with Rose on our show. We really appreciate it. Uh, uh, but for everybody listening, if you have a question or a topic that you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to have you come on the air and talk to us about it. Just visit everydaywealth.com to submit your question. And together with an EFE Wealth Planner, we'll talk about a solution um, specifically to to you that might make sense for you. 
And if you want to catch a show you might have missed, you can always tune into our podcast. Often the podcast will actually have a full interview with our guests, more information that we aren't able to air on the radio because we just don't have enough time. You can download our podcast at everydaywealth.com or wherever you stream your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, we'd love you to subscribe and also to give us a review. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you next time. On Tuesday, August 16th, Edelman Financial Engines is hosting a brand new webinar called Recession and Your Retirement Withdrawal Strategy. Steps to consider now to help secure your retirement. Register now at planefe.com. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.